Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Galatians chapter 2. While you're open to that, one more announcement uh, about this weekend. On Friday night uh, at about 6.30 and on Saturday, 6.30 to about 9.30, and then on Saturday morning from about 9 to noon, we're going to have a seminar here at the church. It's free of charge. We're doing quarterly seminars, uh, discipleship seminars. This one is on the doctrine of the Trinity. What is the Christian Doctrine of the Trinity. We're bringing in a guest from Dallas Theological Seminary. So he's coming in to join us. We've invited lots of other churches. Uh, it's free of charge. If you would like to come to a, a spaghetti supper beforehand, that's only $5. And if you'll let Pastor Chad know as he's trying to gather numbers on that. Also, there are um, flyers on the counter on, in the lobby. So if you want to hand that out to give to somebody to invite them, please invite them to come be our guest uh, this weekend. So again, Friday evening and Saturday morning, I know you will not be disappointed uh, to come and enjoy that with us uh, this weekend. Alright, Galatians chapter 2, um, verse 15. Let me start uh, by reading uh, verse 15 through 21, which we'll be covering the, together this morning. Paul writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 17, but if, in, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray together. Father, we come together around Your Word this morning. And as we sing, we pray, O God, speak to us. Lord, we don't come to be entertained. We are the most entertained people to ever walk planet Earth. We don't need more entertainment. And Lord, we don't come here to have our felt needs scratched. We have an advertising business market that is completely built around finding what our needs are and marketing them to us. So Lord, that's not what we come for. But we come as we prayed because we want and need to hear from You, O oh God. And so we come this morning not trusting in the wisdom of any man, but wholly leaning on Your Word 
in asking that you would be so gracious is to speak to your people through your word this morning. And we trust the results to you. We ask all these things to you, Father. We ask them through the precious name of Jesus. We ask that now you would bring about these things by your spirit. Amen. Well, as uh, you know, we've been walking through the book of Galatians. We're now in the second chapter in the middle of it. I want to quickly summarize how we got to where we are. And I tell you, that's important in any book, but it's really, really important in Galatians. Galatians is a laser-focused book. It is Paul making an argument from the very beginning to the very end of the book. He's got one thing in view. So I want us to make sure we have in our minds what is it that Paul is arguing for even before we get to this point. Remember, the book of Galatians is a book written by Paul to a church in a region of Galatia. So it's a book written to Christians. It is a book written to believers. So keep that in mind. That's even going to come up as we look at the text at hand this morning. Paul begins by reminding them of that which they already confessed to have believed. He reminds them of the gospel in those very first opening verses in chapter 1, 1 down to verse 5. And we looked at those together and said that he's arguing that the gospel is that you have been saved from God. That you have been saved by God and that you are being saved for God. And that is what we said is a summation of 1 through 5. But then as you drop down to verses 6 all the way to verse 10, we get Paul saying he's astonished. He's astonished that they would have set aside the gospel for what might be called another set of good news. And so bear in mind that as we walk through the book, he is telling them about ways of living. That's what I'm after here. Paul isn't in any way accusing anybody of going in and changing the statement of faith. He's not saying you sat down and said, here's now the new way that you believe. He's instead saying, given the way that you're living, it tells me you believe something different than how I left it. Now, what is it that they're doing? Well, we use this analogy, if you remember last time. Remember we used the analogy of a group of people in a land where had a very evil ruler? Remember this analogy? We said that, that a messenger comes to the land and he, and he finds some people there and he tells them, look, your land is going to be destroyed. This guy is going to destroy everybody. You only have one hope. And, and we, we use the analogy of you've got to follow these Navy SEALs that come. And they're your only hope to get out of here. Nothing else will do. And they agree and they say, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to follow those Navy SEALs out. We're with you. And then this, this messenger gets word later that just in a short amount of time, they've stopped following the SEALs out and they're now building their own bomb shelter. Excited about it. They haven't stop, said they've stopped loving the SEALs or think the SEALs are great. They just think this shelter is a good idea to build. You probably remember this analogy. Well, Paul is in a very similar spot. He's got the Galatians who said they believe that Christ is the only way out. He's their only hope. And yet now he's found out that they've tried to start building shelters. They started trying to save themselves by law keeping and other things. They haven't denounced Jesus by any means. They've just turned to their own ways. 
Paul is saying he's astonished. We get that in 1, 6-10. through 10. And then last week, Brother Mark walked us through a lot of Scripture together as he walked us from verse 10 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 14 of chapter 2. The main thrust of that, which Brother Mark did a great job explaining to us, is Paul is saying, I didn't make this up. That is... This didn't come from me. When I tell you this is the Gospel, it's not like I just dreamt this up. In fact, it didn't come from any man. It came from Jesus Christ. So if you want to tie this in with the analogy of the seals, if you were going, if there are a group of people who are following the seals on their way out, back in that analogy, that's who they hoped in, that's who they believed in, and you wanted to get them off course, what's the easiest way to do it? Well, I'm going to tell you, you got a big fight on your hands if you want to try to convince them that there's something wrong with the seals. That the seals aren't good people and that they shouldn't follow them and that they don't care about them. That's not the best way to go about it. You're going to have a fight on your hands. Instead, a better way is to tell them that they can still love the seals, but they also could go build a shelter and at least the shelter they could see and touch. And all the while, they're still loving the seals. The other thing you do is you explain to them the whole time, look, that messenger who came, who came he's got a great idea. If you the, the following seals, that's a, that's a good option. But there's other options you haven't considered. There's lots of other messengers that have other options of how you can save yourself. That's exactly what Paul is arguing in those verses we looked at last week. He is saying, there is no other option. <laughs> I got it straight from the source. And that's it. You can't pick other options. This is it. This is the only way out. And then if you remember there in chapter 2, when we get down to verse 11 uh, through 14, Paul tells us... Tricky sports cap. That's not what he tells us. Paul tells us that... Peter traveled up from Antioch. And he tells us the story of Peter, who is down in Jerusalem, travels up to Antioch. where That's where Paul was ministering to. There's a bunch of Gentiles. And he gives us an amazing uh, portrayal of the Gospel just beautifully displayed. You've got Peter, who is the Apostle to the Jews, sitting down, eating with Gentiles. And folks, that's way out of bounds inside the ceremonial law. He is doing life with the Gentiles because he feels the freedom he has in Christ. And you can imagine how affirming, how encouraging that must be if you're a Gentile and the Apostle to the Jews is sitting down with you doing life with you. And then we saw a horrible thing happen. Some other Jews come up from Jerusalem to Antioch to visit. And what does Paul do? I mean, Peter do. He immediately shrinks back. He draws away from the Gentiles. And you got to imagine how discouraging that must have been to those Gentiles. How hurt they must have been. And Paul said, I called him out on it. I told him this is not right. To the point that he, he says there at the end of verse 14, if you, this is Paul talking to Peter, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? 
So the section we're dealing with this morning is a transition section. It's going to continue the argument he's making to Peter. He's fleshing that out for us a little bit more. But he's also going into the central thesis of the book. What exactly it is he hopes to aim it on. And I'll tell you, this section is the main argument of the book of Galatians. I'll also tell you, this is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. Here you're going to get three amazing things. First, you're going to get a very succinct statement in a main pillar type statement view of what is the gospel. That's going to be the first thing. The second, you're going to hear Paul defend the gospel from accusations and questions. And then lastly, we are going to get to hear from the most sold out Christ follower that ever probably walked the planet explain how it is the gospel fuels his daily life. It's a beautiful, beautiful section. Now, as I was reading through it, I gotta imagine that you like me, even if I was, I read through it over and over and over and over and over this week. And every time I'd read through it, I'd still get lost. (laughs) It is Paul at his finest in logical argumentation. If you read through this section, you will, and we're going to, you're gonna go, what in the world? So I debated a lot how to handle this. What I want to do, because it's such a tight argument, I don't want to just piecemeal it. I want to walk quickly through the whole thing. But as we go through, I'm going to read the verse and then I'm going to offer you a paraphrase of what it is Paul's saying. In a little bit more like our English, but also a little bit expanded because there's a lot of things that he builds in these. They're just one word so that we have an idea. So we're going to walk through that together as our very first thing. So please pay attention as we do this. It'll be up on the screens as well. The first thing they have in mind here is Paul assumes a question. He assumes the question that we see in Job 25, when Job's friend asks, how is it that a man can be made just before God? Or as we see it repeated throughout the Scriptures this way, how can man be saved? How? How is that done? Now, that that's at the heart of what we're getting. So let's walk first. Verse 15. We ourselves, this is Paul speaking, and in particular he's talking to Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So Paul's making an observation. We, you and me, Peter, and the other Jewish believers, are all authentic Jews. We're not law-ignoring Gentiles. That's what he's after here. I was born a Jew. You are born a Jew. We know that. By birth, we're Jews. We're not like those Gentiles who fully ignored the law. That's verse 15. Verse 16a. 16 is a crux of this this, uh, section. Yet we know. Something there's no disagreement on. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This is our main pillar of the Gospel. We know that a person is not made right, is not saved by the law, but is saved through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a succinct statement of the Gospel. We know that somebody is not saved by keeping the law, but they're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. 16b. 
This is going to be a positive way to restate what he just said. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Here's the restatement. We, along with the law-ignoring Gentiles, have believed in Christ Jesus. It is this belief, this faith, that has made us innocent before God and not the laws that we have kept. We are just like the law-ignoring Gentiles. We believed in Jesus Christ. It's this faith, this belief... That saved us, not the laws that we've kept. 16c. It's going to be a negative reinstatement of it, a restatement of it. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be declared innocent before God on account of the laws that they have kept. No one will be saved because they have kept the law. That's the gospel. No one's going to be saved because of the laws they've kept. No one will be saved because of the law. Alright, we're halfway through. So if you feel like you're still with it, you're, you're doing well. 17. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. This is one of the harder ones to get what's going on. Paul is defending this against a common accusation in question. Saying, since we do not keep all the laws we used to keep... Our lives now look much more like the Gentile sinners. So some may ask, have asked the question, if Christ is the one who taught you to live this way, the one who taught you to live like Gentile, quote, sinners, then haven't you made Christ the teacher of sin? Paul's response, certainly that is not true. Not true at all. Verse 18 and 19 together, For I... If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Here he's offering a caution over hypocrisy. Again, he's dealing with another accusation in question. He says this, I've, stopped, I've worked to stop building my hope on law-keeping. It used to be on law-keeping. It used to be my hope. I've worked to stop building my hope on law-keeping. If I now start trying to rebuild my hope on it, then I'm a hypocrite. Why? Two reasons. First, because I teach others to not build their hope on law-keeping. And second, I myself was unable to effectively keep the law. If I now start to hope in law-keeping, I'm doing the very opposite of what I've taught and... I'm doing the very thing I know by experience I cannot do. To do so is hypocritical. I open myself up to the very charge I stood against Peter for doing. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. Listen, here he is saying a radical. This is Paul telling us how he lives. This is how the gospel radically changes his life. All the merit that was earned by my works was crucified on the cross with Christ. Along with my sin, my demerits, along with my former passions, worldviews, and goals, 
So I cannot now live in my works because the person who lived that way is gone. He's dead. Now all my living unto God is actually Christ living in me. Giving me life. The life I now live is all focused on my belief that Christ, the Son of God, has loved me and He will save me. In verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Again, he's defending it against another question or accusation. Some may think that our law keeping cheapens the gift God has given us. Sorry, some may think that our lack of law keeping cheapens the gift of God that God has given us. Not only does my lack of law keeping not, uh, not nullify the grace of God, but in fact, the opposite is true. If I could be saved by law keeping, then Christ died for no purpose at all. So there's the argument from beginning to end. And I know he's got a lot of different ways he's going about it, but I hope you see it's pretty laser focused. He's got one main idea that he's just uh, barreling through throughout the whole thing. Technically, the exposition is finished. Um, we could go home, but that'd be way too early. And so, uh, let's keep going. Alright. So, what is he saying? What is Paul after here? Well, again, he gives us the main pillar in verse 16. When he says, we cannot be saved by keeping works of the law. We can only be saved by an active faith, a rich trust, and a sustaining hope in Christ Jesus. Now folks, this sits at the core level of Christianity. It is at the epicenter of what we believe as Christians. I submit to you, every, every generation of Christian believers, every Christian denomination, every Christian church, and indeed, every Christian struggles to believe and make sense of this truth. It is not by chance that the first letter that was ever penned to a Christian congregation, this letter, was laser focused on defending this truth. This amazing truth was the foundational truth of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther said of the book of Galatians, he said, the book of Galatians is my book. He actually goes as far as to describe it in the way that he, uh, the love he has for his wife Catherine. He says, I have wedded myself to this book. It is my Catherine. Why? Because the truth that we cannot save ourselves by keeping works of the law and can only be saved by an active, present faith or trust in Jesus, turn Luther's world upside down and God would use Luther to turn the world upside down. But again, it's not new in the 16th century. The very first letter ever penned to a Christian congregation is laser focused on it. It's not like Luther came up with something Brand new. It's exactly what Paul wrote with all of his might and vigor passionately defending to the Galatians. I'm going to guess though that this is not a new truth for most of you all. That is, I doubt many of you are sitting there thinking to yourselves, 
wait a second. We're not saved by keeping the law? I had no idea. I had no idea. I'm guessing, for most of us, that's probably not a new truth. Still, while it might not be news to any of us, it is likely the case that all of us struggle to live consistently in light of it. So we said at the, at the beginning, the book of, of uh, Galatians is written to Christians. These folks were not dropping Jesus. That was not what was on the table. They weren't changing their name from first Christian church of Galatia to the first Lawian church of Galatia. The kids' choir did not replace singing Jesus loves me with law keeping saves me. The quarterbacks were not uh, now painting Exodus 20 on their faces instead of John 3.16. And yet Paul still thinks they are in a real and present danger. Moreover, I have to tell you from personal experience, I understand this danger. For years, I thought I had this truth nailed. I grew up Baptist for crying out loud. I could tell you in a skinny second that Catholics think the law saves them and that we good Baptists know that Jesus saves us. I could spell out for you my experience of Jesus and therefore I could check this truth off. I thought I could move on. And yet, the more I've considered this truth, and the more I look at my heart, the more I see a guy who lives as if law-keeping will save him, than if only Christ will save him. Beloved, in our hearts, we would much rather build shelters that we can see and touch and adore than live dependently day in and day out on someone else. When you're following the seals, you, can, you cannot always see how it is you're going to be saved. It's just, where are you going, boys? What's, what's next? Further, you own no praise if you get out alive. But think about it. If you build a big bomb shelter, and then the crazy leader drops the bomb on the land, and you end up living through it, then you can walk out of there patting yourselves on the back. See here, Clark? Look at this amazing shelter I built with top grade titanium. It's a beaut. It's a real beaut. I did it. This is mine. Nothing like that if you follow the seals. Paul knows that. And that is why, after clearly stating that in verse 16, the truth he feels the need to explain why hope, why hoping in shelter building and law keeping simply will not save. It doesn't work. Listen, he explains in verse 17 that living this way does not in any way make Jesus a leader of sinning. He said, if you're afraid that it's going to make Jesus look bad by you not hoping in law keeping, stop. It's not even an issue. Then he goes on and he explains in verse 18 and 19 that if we trust in shelters, then we actually make ourselves hypocrites. We say we believe in Jesus, but we, we keep building these shelters. We keep trying to live by law keeping. It's not going to work. And then finally in verse 21, he argues that trusting in Jesus does not nullify the grace of God, but instead building shelters does. And it makes the cross look utterly unnecessary. But the most helpful point of this section comes in verse 20. 
In verse 20, Paul explains how it is he lives by actively following Jesus and not by trusting in shelters to build and save himself. This verse has been one of, has to be one of the most precious statements ever penned, bar none. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live it by the Son of God who has loved me and gave Himself for me. Listen to what Paul is saying here. He says that when Christ died, He died with Him. That's exactly what he says. I've been crucified. Now, Paul must mean something different by died and death than we typically use, evidenced by the fact he was able to write the, the sentence, right? So what is he saying? He is saying two very important things. First, on the cross of Christ, all the ways that he failed to keep the law, that is, all of his sin died with Jesus. All of that's gone. All that was paid for on the cross. Friend, if you are here and you are carrying with you the guilt of sin, you can't figure out how it is that given your sin you could ever be right with God, then thank God for the guilt that you feel. It will drive you to the cross of Christ and only the cross of Christ can pay your debt of sin. And Paul says, praise God, I was crucified. My sin died on the cross of Christ. But there's something else that he's saying, something more that he's saying. Paul is saying that on the cross of Christ, I'm going to use language like this, he's saying, I lost my arms, my legs, my eyes, everything and anything that I could use to build a shelter for myself went down on the cross of Christ. I don't hope in law giving anymore, says Paul, because all the ability to save myself actually died on the cross with Jesus. Beloved, if you have tasted of the salvation of Christ, then you will give up your efforts of making it on your own. You cannot do it, praise God. Part of following Jesus is dying to your ability to save yourself. So it's pointless to try and live any differently. So all the debt that Paul owed for his sin, for his lack of merit or his demerit, was fully paid on the cross when Jesus died. But more than that, so also he left on the cross all his trying to build merit. All his trying to establish positive credit towards God. It died. All of his striving died. That takes us to the next point. It is no longer I that live, says Paul. But it's Christ who lives in me. Okay, that's a really neat saying and that's a really great t-shirt. But what does it mean? Again, you've got to keep the context in mind. He's talking about law keeping. 
Paul is saying that he no longer lives. Christ lives. So if there's any good work or fruit that comes from his life, Paul's saying it's of no credit to him. Why? Because it's Jesus who deserves the credit. That is, on the cross of Christ, not only did Jesus pay the full balance of what Paul owed to God, but far better, God took the fruit of Christ's perfect merit and added it on Paul's account. Now just stay with me, I promise you, I'll get you. So the Paul, that Paul went from owing God a debt he could never pay, to now having a balance of good works to spend for righteousness that he never earned. Some of you say, well, wait, wait, that doesn't seem right. Us doing good things are fueled by Jesus and then us getting credit for it. Well, if that seems wrong to you, you're right. It's wrong. That's what Paul's up in arms about. <laughs> He's up in arms. He's not upset at all by the fact that they're doing things by the law keeping. That doesn't bother him. What bothers him is that they're hoping in the law keeping and that they hope that it will bring them favor. Let me try to give you another analogy for this. You meet a young couple. They're fresh out of school. They have racked up a massive amount of debt. Their credit cards are maxed out. They can't even buy anything. They explain to you their woes and they tell you, we will never, ever, 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 ever have another credit card again if we ever get these things paid off. A couple weeks later, you, you, you uh, meet up with them. They have on brand new clothes. I don't know how you'd know that, but it works for my analogy. They, they have on brand new shoes. Again, not real sure. Maybe they're real clean. And they have brand new phones because you inspect everybody's phone that you're with. Just help my analogy here, right? So, you're, you're a little curious. You, you, you eat lunch. You're fully expecting to pay for lunch. And at the end, the husband says, no, 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 we got this. He puts a, a card down on the table. He said, okay, I've had it. Okay, look, look, let's just talk. Have you all forgotten the the vow you made about never, ever, 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 ever? You remember that part? What are you doing? And he looks at you and goes, Oh, 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 oh. This isn't a credit card. This is a debit card. See, something really crazy has happened. I have a really rich uncle. He found out about our situation. Here's what happened. He paid all our debt in full overnight. It was gone. But he left us an account with 10 billion, that's with a B, dollars in it. And this debit card's connected to it. We can spend all we want. And he told us to go ahead and spend all we want. So no, 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 no. We would never go on credit. We would only go off of this account with a massive balance. Who is it that gets praise for the lunch that you eat? It's the rich uncle, isn't it? Who is it who deserves credit for everything that couple will buy for the rest of their lives? That couple? No. It's the rich uncle. Paul is saying, I had maxed out my credit card full of debt. I owed God for my sin and rebellion beyond which I could never pay. Christ paid the debt in full. But moreover, He left me with a massive balance of good works in my debit account 
So I have a debit card full of good works earned by Jesus to spend in His name and for His glory. So let it be declared, if you ever see something good of Paul, it's no account of me. I'm just spending the balance that Christ paid with His perfect life in which God in the Gospel credited to my account. It is no longer I that live. It's Christ who lives. It's active. Lives in me. And then He continues, in the life that I now live in the flesh, I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul says that his life is actively living in the flesh by faith in the Son of God, the One who loved him and gave himself for him. Now listen, I've heard some folks interpret this verse to say that Paul has such gratitude over the fact that Jesus would love him and give himself for him that he now is seeking to pay Jesus back in the way that he lives for that debt. Now that sounds real good on the face of it. Let me tell you, as Americans, we love to hear that. We like to hear that we pull ourselves up our own bootstraps. The only problem is it is dead wrong. Paul has already declared that all of his merit-earning ability died on the cross. He can't build anything now because he has no more arms, legs, and eyes. He couldn't if he wanted to. Let me give you, go back to the couple in debt. Imagine how upset Uncle Rich would be to get a letter from his nephew that states, Dearest Uncle, I've taken all the money in the account, the $10 billion, and I've buried it in my backyard. I'll no longer use it because, you know, I never deserved it to begin with. And I've now gotten a job paying $6 an hour, that w- and I'll work the next 30 years to pay back the $350,000.02 of debt that you paid for me. Now, how would you feel if you were the uncle? You would be furious, right? Number one, he took your $10 billion and buried it in the backyard. But you're also going to be furious because the very life you tried to save him from, he is now living. No, son. Don't do that. But why would you ever do that if you're the nephew? You would do it if you wanted to secure the praise. If you couldn't stand it, that for the rest of your life you should get no credit for the good deeds you do. If you can't stomach the thought of spending the rest of your life doing things for which you get no credit because you deserve no credit, then you're going to have a real hard time living the Christian life. The Christian life is all about depending solely for everything on Jesus. Everything He's given us in His death whereby He paid for our sins and in His perfect life which purchased us new hearts to live radically different for His kingdom. So what does Paul mean when he says live by faith in the Son of God? He means that day in and day out Paul's life is focused on following and actively trusting and hoping in God to provide His needs, establish His wants, transform His heart. And any time he's prone to not trust, he looks back to the cross 
as ample evidence that God will provide. It is not His way of paying back a debt. It is His way of looking back at the cross and saying, when I start to doubt that tomorrow He's going to take care of me, I look at the cross and say, He loved me. He gave Himself for me. Stop doubting what good thing would He now withhold. That sounds like Paul it is in Romans. So Paul lives by consistently, not just one time, looking at Jesus and say, I believe in you. I'm banking on you. I'm trusting in you. In this way of living, Paul can get no glory. All goes to Jesus. Let's return to the seals analogy. If you follow the seals out and you're saved, then you have no reason to boast. I I mean, imagine how that's going to go down. Somebody followed the seals all the way out. Soon after they get out, the, the land's destroyed. And someone says, how did you get out? How did you survive? What did you do? What would you respond? I mean, pretty much nothing. right? We followed them and hoped they'd get us out alive. We didn't have any weapons. We didn't have any game plans. We didn't have any food. When we needed weapons, we said, hey. And they said, here. When we needed to know what the plan was, they told us. When we needed food, they gave it to us. All we did was follow. And Jesus Christ is saying to you, believer, to me, to us as a church, don't build a shelter for your name. Just follow me and bank on me. Trust in me. The Gospel is not merely the gate to the Christian life. It's our highway. And there are no other highways. Believers, we are called to die in hoping in any other thing. We're called to die in hoping in any other person. Die to hoping in any other treasure. We're called to look at Jesus as our only hope. Paul doesn't care about the Galatians keeping the law. But let me tell you, he is gravely concerned when they keep the law as their hope. Is what they're banking on. Not long ago, I sat in a room of our young people as we looked at the book of Romans and I posed this question to them. I said, when you go to bed tonight, what is the only thing you can know will be there tomorrow when you wake up? And they gave different answers, fair ones, my family, my country. So you just stop yourself. I want you to feel the way to this before I tell you how they exactly responded. You go to bed tonight. And this is a helpful heart check. You lay your, down, your head down on a pillow. What is the only thing you can be confident will be there when you wake up. Just wait a second. Feel the weight of that. And so they said, well, my family, my my country. I reminded them how young our country is. How it actually hadn't been around long at all in the scheme of history. And it hasn't. That there's no promise it will be around forever. Fact, truth of history, if you look at history close enough, just given the way that empires have come and gone, it might not. I reminded them when they said their family of a story I'd read just recently 
about a young man who went off to college as a freshman. The whole family, mom, dad, four siblings, packed up in a van, took him off his freshman year, dropped him off his very first weekend. On the way home, a drunk driver hit their car and killed his entire family. Gone. I said, unfortunately, I can't tell you that you're going to be promised your country or your family, even when you wake up. They were smart enough not to guess their life. (laughs) They had me on that one. I'll never forget uh, Jessica Short, who's actually here with us from college, piped up. She said, we can count on the love of God, Tim. I don't know I could sum up the Gospel any better than that. And by the way, I remember about tearing up when she said it, but I thought... I urge because it was a small room, it would be really awkward, and this is less awkward, I guess. <laughs> That's the Gospel. The Gospel says, I have nothing else to count on. I've got nothing else to hope in, but one promise. God's love will never fail. And He has shown it in Christ. I ask you, be honest. Don't give a church answer to yourself because you're not having to answer anybody else. Don't cut yourself short. What are you hoping in? I hope not finances. I hope you've seen the volatility of our financial structure. But many of us are. Maybe you're really hoping in your kids. You're hoping in the degree you're hoping to finally get done. You're hoping in your spouse, in your job, the legacy you might be able to leave. I'm telling you, the Gospel says, take that to the cross of Christ and have a crucifixion over it. It's gone. All you got, all you have is Christ Jesus. And the Gospel is, that is all you need and all you'll ever want. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live. It is Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me.